Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading comes to us from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than all any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 20, verses 1 to 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, because he was a sprinter. (laughs) He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, I like how they put that in there just to make sure you know that, right? Also went in and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to thank you all for being here. Happy Easter once again. It's great to see you all here. And um, I think I need to point out something to you that you may not know about this particular day, which is that there's a lot more people here than there usually is on a Sunday. Like two and a half times as many people. Now I don't say that to make any of you who are here just today feel bad about not being here on the other days. You're welcome to come, by the way, if you'd like to. But I say it because clearly, for those of you who made the effort to be here who aren't normally here, like, you did this for a reason. You, you came here for a reason. Now, if we're being honest about the reason, right? The reason is that, more than likely, your family asked you to come and to be here. I mean, you know how it works. I understand how it goes. You know, you get on the phone, your mom calls you a couple weeks before, and she's just checking in on you, and then she hits you with the question you weren't expecting because you weren't thinking about Easter, right? And she says, hey, uh, I don't know what you're doing on Easter, but would you mind coming to my house? We'll go to service, and then, you know, we'll go get brunch afterwards. Of course, you can't. Easter's not complete without brunch, right? So I hope you all are going to get that afterwards. She says, it's going to be a lovely day, lovely day. And then you sit there, and you try to talk on for a little bit, and then you're like, oh, oh, you're busy? Oh, that's too bad. No, it's, not, it's no big deal to me. I mean, I'm just your mother. I gave birth to you. Like, I don't understand why you would think it would hurt me in any way. But I just want you to know it's okay. Uh, your father, though, he is redoing the will very soon. And by coincidence, he just happens to be signing it the day after Easter. So we'll see you there. I know the conversation went something like that, right? <laughs> now we get together on Easter because it's a day where, where family makes an effort to get together and you come to service and I thank you that you're here, but I've always found it to be kind of an odd day that we get together on Easter. Like this particular day, we just read all this stuff from John, right? What's happening on this day? This is when Jesus comes back from the dead, right? He's executed and then 36 hours later, he's back up walking around. If I'm being totally transparent with you, out of all the things that happened to Jesus in his life that you find in the Bible, this event, the resurrection, that is the one thing that people doubt the most about Christianity. Now, by show of hands, I'm interested to know, how many of you in here believe that Jesus physically, bodily, came back from the dead. How many of you believe that to be true? Your mom's like, he's signing the papers tomorrow. Where's that hand? And you're all like, he is risen. He is risen indeed. All right, now for those of you who didn't raise your hand, I want you to know that you're actually in pretty good company. So a Rasmussen research report poll states that 36% of the American population 
does not believe in Jesus' resurrection. 19% just reject it outright. 17% say they are unsure. And it is estimated that this particular number is going to be growing every single year. I mean, this was done in 2013. That number is now higher. Why is it higher? It's higher because we live in a world where our thinking has been influenced by the scientific method. Is that true? Absolutely it has. So we live in a world where things are testable. If I throw something up in the air, it's going to come back down, right? Unless there's a rocket attached to it. It's going to come back down. Why? Because of gravity. gravity. Testable, right? If my heart stops beating and nobody bothers to resuscitate me, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to die. That's medically verifiable. No heartbeat means no life. Now, yes, there are some instances where people die for short periods of time and then come back. But with Jesus, we're talking about being dead for 36 hours or more. No one in human history has ever made that claim besides him. And unless somebody in here creates a time machine, the fact is it's not going to be testable or verifiable. And yet, even though people in our modern world, they struggle with this story as being true, the fact is that Easter is still the most well-attended Sunday of any Sunday out of the year. Hands down, people still come here. So my question is why? Why is that the case? Given that more and more people are doubting the resurrection, you would think that there would be a massive drop-off, right? That, that basically you wouldn't see people here in the same way. And there has been a little bit of a drop-off. There's no doubt about it. But not the nosedive that you would expect. You all clearly made a concerted effort to be here. And yes, you could say, you could say, yes, it's tradition for people to come here with their families on Easter. But I pose a question to you. Does this story, the story that you come here to hear every year, does it resonate with you in some way? Is there something about this story that's meaningful to you? I mean, let's just set aside the factual accuracy of the story. Let's not even worry about whether it's factually accurate. Is there something about this story that rings true to you that you're willing to come back year after year to hear it? And I think that that is the case, that for people, there is something about this story that rings true, and that's what I want to talk about this today. What is it about this particular story that causes people to come back year after year to want to hear it? Why is it meaningful to you all? To begin this discussion, I'd actually like to go to our Old Testament scripture reading today. This is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Speaking of stories, by the way, that don't exactly jive with our modern understanding of science and evolutionary biology, that would be the Adam and Eve story. Now, this story is what I call a sacred story. Now, what do I mean by sacred story? I mean it was written by ancient peoples who had no intention of writing history in the way that we understand history today. So when they wrote that down, they didn't think to themselves, we are writing a factual history of the world. Like, they didn't think about it like that. They thought about it as they were trying to convey truth about humans and their relationship with God. Very different even though most Christians today, a lot of Christians read that and they say, oh, they were writing history. That is not how they intended it. So let's lay the foundation. Here we have Adam and Eve. They're in the Garden of Eden. And they've been given one rule, right? One rule. You can eat from the fruit of any tree in the garden that you want to. 
but you just can't eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now this is where the serpent enters into the story. Just so we're clear, the serpent can speak in this story, and I just want you to know that. That's important. So the serpent goes up to the woman and says, hey, I just want you to know that when God told you you couldn't eat the fruit from that tree, the consequence that he gave you for doing that, he wasn't telling you the truth. He said you die. You won't die. This is exactly what the serpent says right here. You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right. Now, I think it's important for us when we read this story not to think of this literally as being a conversation between a woman and a snake. Like, I think that's probably in our best interest, so just set that one aside. It's better to think of it as this woman is having a conversation within her own mind with herself. And we've all done that, right? I mean, we've all had conversations in our own head. You've been told that you shouldn't do something, and then you sit there and you rationalize and justify to yourself why you should. When you're a kid, it's things like, don't eat the cookie out of the cookie jar. When you're a teenager, it's things like, don't drink and do drugs. When you're an adult, it's a boring things like, don't cheat on your taxes, right? And you wouldn't believe how many people cheat on their taxes. So that's the first part. The second thing I want you to notice about this story is what the serpent says at the end there. He says, when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this tells us something very interesting about the internal logic going on in this, which is that unless Eve eats of the fruit, she doesn't know the difference between good and evil, which begs an interesting question. How is Eve supposed to make an informed decision about whether it's good or bad to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil if she doesn't know the difference between good and evil? That's kind of a paradox, don't you think? She needs to eat from the tree to figure out she shouldn't have eaten from the tree. Now, I tell you all this. I'm glad somebody laughed at that. You know, I think that's good. That's one of my better jokes today, I think. It's a Bible joke. You don't get too many of those in there. Now, I think the entire purpose of this story, the reason why this story exists, is because it's trying to tell us that an inevitable aspect of the human experience is that you are going to make mistakes. Is that a truism? Absolutely it is. Absolutely. In fact, I think that's the whole point of this story. The whole point is that you have to make mistakes. You have to make mistakes to understand the difference between right and wrong. And that's why I find this story to be so beautiful. I love this particular story. Because what it's telling us is that life is a matter of contrast. You cannot know what is truly good until you have experienced evil. And I would be willing to wager that some of the best people you have ever met in your life, just like me, some of the best people you have ever met are people who have made the most mistakes. The most mistakes. They've done the worst things, and then they've gone back to the other side and they become some of the best people. But there's a flip side to all of this, isn't there? And the flip side is, yes, it may be inevitable that we are going to make mistakes. That might be an inevitability. But those mistakes, they have consequences in the world, do they not? They do. Now, thankfully, most of the time, those consequences, when we make a mistake, we only end up hurting ourselves. But sometimes, when we make a mistake, it ripples out far beyond us 
and it ends up impacting people in really dramatic ways. I'm gonna give you an example of this from my own life. So back in 2007, I just graduated from seminary, and I couldn't just jump into being a pastor yet. They said, you gotta do some internships. So I was like, okay, I'll do an internship. And one of the internships that I did was an internship at Trenton Psychiatric Hospital in Trenton, New Jersey. Now this particular hospital, this is the oldest psychiatric hospital in America. It was founded by Dorothea Dix. She was one of the first people in the 1800s to really promote this idea that people with mental illness, they shouldn't be locked away in cells. They needed to be treated properly. Now, today, Trenton Psych is a psychiatric facility that houses the worst 5% of people who suffer from mental illness. It's a state facility. And I think it's important to understand that mental illness is a spectrum, by the way. It's a spectrum. And there's lots of people in the world with mental illness. There's lots of people in this room who have mental illness. Most of us who have it, we can exist okay. Like we can get by, it only hinders us so much. But for the people I worked with at Trenton Psych, their mental illness had caused their lives to fall apart. And the reason why they were there is because they had committed a crime and a judge had determined that their mental illness had influenced their decisions when making this, when doing these things, when committing this crime. And so rather than having them serve out their time in a prison, they were gonna serve out their time at Trenton Psych. So the people who I met there, there were, there were a number of people who had committed minor crimes. But then there was also a lot of people there who had done horrific things. I worked with people who were murderers and rapists. I worked with pedophiles and drug addicts. And as I got to know these people much more closely, what I came to realize is that these people didn't just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I think I'm gonna be a criminal today. No, they didn't do that at all. What happened was they had a whole history behind them. And because I was a chaplain, I had access to their charts. And in their charts, there was a narrative history of their lives, literally what happened to them from the time they were a child all the way until they ended up in the hospital. And within these narrative histories, it was rare for me to find someone who had not had a difficult or even tragic childhood. Many of these people had been severely abused. Many of them had been severely neglected. And there were times when I would read stuff in their charts that was so disturbing, I would sit there and I would say to myself, that can't be true. Nobody would actually do that to a child. Now, the most important lesson I came away with from my time at Trenton Psych is that my understanding of good and evil was extraordinarily simplistic. Extraordinarily simplistic. I mean, it's one thing to sit there and to say, you committed this crime. Right? Like, you stole this thing. You murdered this person. You can isolate that and say you did that. But it's a whole other thing when you sit there and you look at a person's history and how their past influenced their actions, the decisions that they made. It's a lot more complicated that way. Because think about it. How do you unwind all the factors? How do you unwind all the things, the the thoughts, the words, the deeds, all the things that were done to these people from one generation to the next, the things that led them to this point. How do you unwind all of that and make it right? Because when you step back and you look holistically 
at a person's life and you realize they didn't just wake up one day and do this, that there were all these events that led up to it, it feels like, you know what, we can't make it right. That it's almost impossible for us to do anything to make this right. And I think that's why people are drawn to this story of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's because within this story, it conveys to us a message that even though we can't make things right, God can. And that it conveys a message that God can bring an equilibrium back to the universe. And I think that's why people tend to come back to hear this story year after year after year. There's something in there that conveys this message that at the core of Christianity, the purpose of the Christian faith is that we are here to restore balance to a broken and hurting world. That's the goal. And how I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning is by talking about how Christianity achieves that end. Now, there are generally three ways that people in Christianity believe this to be true. I'm just going to point them out to you real quick. We're going to run through them. First way is that evil will always be in the world, no matter what, until Jesus returns. So this is a common Christian belief. One day Jesus is going to come back. He's going to trigger Armageddon, and he's going to merge heaven with earth and vanquish evil from the world. It's a very apocalyptic idea, but this is what a number of Christians believe. The second way of thinking about this is held by most people in the Christian faith. This is the majority opinion, is that evil is always going to be in the world, no matter what, until you die. And when your soul goes to heaven to be with God, that's the only time in your life that you will not experience evil. All right. So it's the idea that it's always going to be here, and you have to die to get, get away from it. The third answer, and this is a minority opinion, is the belief that evil will always be here until we choose to live our lives like Jesus, actively working to destroy the evil inside of us. Now, I want to tell you, out of these three options, I disagree with the first two. And let me tell you why I disagree with the first two. Because if you subscribe to the first two, essentially what you're saying is, hey, there's nothing we can do. Evil's always going to be in the world. Our hands are tied. So, hey, you might as well get used to it because this is the way it's always going to be. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. And I can very easily tell you why. Where does evil come from in the world? Is there some outside force that just comes in and causes us to do all of these things? No. Where does evil come from? comes from us. Like, just imagine, thought experiment for a second. You get rid of all the humans on the planet. Today, we all disappear just like that. What happens to evil? It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. So you destroy the evil inside of yourself. You destroy the evil in the world. And that is why I subscribe to option three, because I believe we do have a choice. I believe we can get rid of evil in this world. But... This brings us to the rub of the situation. How is it exactly that Christianity gets rid of evil in the world? Because, I mean, how many Christians are there? Like close to a billion. And is evil still in the world? Uh, yeah. And are Christians the ones committing that evil? Uh, yeah. So you can sit there and you can say, okay, Alex, that's great that Christianity gets rid of evil. Doesn't seem like it's really working very well. So how is it supposed to work? Well, this is how it's supposed to work. Let's take a step back for a second. When bad things happen to you, or when evil comes out of you, where does it come from? Where does it start? It starts 
with a selfish desire, right? Every single thing you do, when you hurt somebody, or when somebody hurts you, where does it start? It starts with a selfish desire, doesn't it? So there's all these little seeds inside of us that have these selfish desires in there. And if you allow those to grow, then that evil is going to manifest itself in the world. It's just the way it works. Now, how do you get rid of it? This is what Christians do not often do. But you take the idea from Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, right? His sacrifice and his renewal. You go after those seeds, you identify the seeds that are in your heart, and you sacrifice them. You kill them off. And then God grows something new in its place. And when you get rid of those things, one after another after another, you stop bringing your evil into the world. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Are you with me still? Okay, we're still there. I don't want you to lose it because this is really important right here, okay? So, you got to do that. Most of us don't even do that. I'm just saying, that's a big reason why it doesn't happen because you have to be actively working to kill that stuff off. Now, that's the first step. The second step is even harder because let's say you do kill off all those seeds inside of you. You don't let them grow. Well, there's still all these people out there who have been affected by evil in really, really horrific ways. And it's our job to go out and try to bring healing to those people. Now, how do you do that? It's actually pretty simple in some ways, but it's hard for us to do. Let me give you some examples, concrete examples. You already know some of these. So you've got to give over your resources. So if you have a lot of food, if you have clothing, if you have shelter, if you have money, you need to give those things to the people who don't have those. But even more important than that, you need to give up your time. Are you an educated? Most people in here are probably educated, aren't you? You hold all that to yourself, or are you going to help other people who don't have that education? Let me tell you something. With the people who I worked with at Trenton Psych, I can tell you for sure that if they just had a few people who are willing to invest in them, a few people who gave them just a few more resources to have at their disposal, a few more people who had spent time caring for them and working with them, they would not have ended up where they were. Now that's the worst 5%. Think if you do that for people who are right in the middle, how much of a difference you can make. The more you are willing to sacrifice, the more you are willing to give to those who have suffered the effects of evil, the more you bring restoration to this world because you draw those people out of the shadows. That is our job. And indeed, I think that we should think of Jesus' resurrection in terms of restoration. Hear me on this. The entire point of the celebration today, the reason why we are here, is to be reminded that God has given us, humanity, all the tools we need to rid evil from the world. In the Jewish faith, in the Jewish tradition, this is concept is known as tikkun olam, the restoration of the world. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Now, I've just said a bunch of stuff to you. You all have been very kind to sit there and listen to me blabber on all this time, right? And I've talked a lot about concepts and things that are happening. I've been talking about the restoration of the world. And then you're going to leave, and you're going to go out, and you're going to have brunch, and you say, that was a very nice sermon. All right, and I'm going to move on with my life, right? The only way that restoration works is if we actually do it. And that's why today I'm introducing a new initiative in our congregation. This initiative is called Days of Restoration. The concept behind Days of Restoration is that you will be asked on a certain day to sacrifice something that you have for the benefit of other people. So what does this look like? Well, if you're part of this initiative, 
then you're going to receive a task on a day of restoration. The task could be very simple. It could be something like hold the door for somebody who's elderly or disabled. It could be something like you need to give of your time to somebody who you see, maybe in a grocery store or somewhere else. They look like they need somebody to talk to, and you give of your time so that they can have a friendly ear to listen to them. It could be giving of your resources. It could be giving over the money you have to buy food or clothing for somebody living out on the street. Each day of restoration will be different. They will come at random times, and they will not happen all that often. But the goal is that we practice this ethos of sacrifice and restoration. Now, if you're visiting with us today, and many of you are, you can participate in this if you want to. It's very easy. You just go to our website, firstprezah.org, and you'll see at the very top this little link that says restoration. You click on it, you enter in your name and your email. We will not barrage you with all the stuff that comes from us. The only thing that you'll get is the stuff on a day of restoration. If you're here, and you're part of our church and you're actively here and you get our emails, you will receive an email to opt in. You are not automatically part of it. You have to want to do this in your life. And what will happen is the night before a day of restoration, you'll receive an email and it'll say, tomorrow, this is your task. Here's what you're supposed to go out and do. And the idea is that the more and more we engage in these acts of sacrifice and restoration, the more they become normalized in our lives to the point where they're not just happening when I send you an email to do them, you're actually doing them all the time. Because in this way, we can actually live up to the purpose of the Christian faith, which is restoring balance in order to our world. Now this brings me to the end of my sermon, but I want to end with one last thing, if you don't mind. Are you okay with that? Can I just do one more thing? One more thing. I know you've been, you've been good to me. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I want to end this morning by telling you a story. And this is the story of Tikkun Olam, the restoration of the world. Now the story that is attached to this Jewish phrase, it's a story about the purpose for which human beings were made. And it's a story of creation. It's kind of like the story that we read in Genesis chapter 1. It's, it's a mystical story, so it's not exactly the same. But it gets at this idea of why we were made, why we're here, and what we're supposed to be doing. So you ready for the story? You're like, yeah, I'm trying to get to brunch. Okay. <laughs> Hit me with it. So, the story goes like this. In the beginning, when God resolved to create the world, God determined that it was necessary to reduce God's self into vessels of light. And so God reduced parts of God's self down into these different vessels, and they were all over the universe. Everywhere were these vessels of light. But unfortunately, there was an accident. And all of these vessels shattered, causing all of the wholeness of the universe to be dispersed into an infinite number of fragments. Now, God, seeing these fragments, decided not to allow them to just fall into the cracks and the crevices of the universe. Instead, God decided to make human beings. And God endowed human beings with a very special gift. We have the ability to see God's hidden light throughout the world. And there's two specific places where we can see it the best. In people, in the events of our lives. Now, every time we see God's hidden light in the world, 
Our job is to point it out to other people so that they can see it too. Because the more people who see it, the more wholeness is restored to our world. And in this way, we are achieving the end that God created for us. The purpose of humanity is tikkun olam, the restoration of the world through the lifting up of hidden light. Now the truth is that this task cannot be sustained by the work of a few. It requires the collective effort of every human being on the planet. The more and more each generation gets together to expose God's hidden light in the world, the more the world edges closer to wholeness. And I want you to know that as we edge closer, the purpose of this is that you all have been given a gift, and this is a reminder to you. You have a gift that God has given you. God has made you a healer of this universe, and that is why we are gathered here together today. You have been gathered here together to be reminded that Jesus made you a healer of the world. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would embrace the role that God bestowed upon you from your birth. You are a restorer of this world. You just have to take it, own it, go out, and heal the brokenness of the world. It's inside of every single one of you. Are you going to take up the call today? Or are you going to leave here and go eat brunch? <laughs> I hope you're going to restore the world. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.